All right, awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, so if you're new, welcome. We're, we're going to jump into the scripture this morning, which is something we do every single week. And so uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and you can open them up to the book of Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be a pew Bible available around you. And we're going to be on page 984 in that Bible. All right, and once you're there, go ahead and stand up. And we'll take a look at it together. So go ahead and follow along with me. Um, our verses for today are verses 5 through 11, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backspace a little bit to start in verse 1. So Colossians 3, starting in verse 1, says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You can stay standing while we pray. Father God, we, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul writing to the Colossians these words. I pray that uh, these words would impact our hearts this morning, uh, that by the power of your Spirit, uh, through your Word, you would uh, come and break down barriers that we have to you, that you would shake us up, that you would uh, instruct us, help us to be listening to you and what you want to speak to us, uh, help us to lay aside distractions, uh, plans, notifications, uh, worries, anxieties, all in exchange for hearing from you directly. I pray that my words would um, be the vehicle for your truth, uh, not anything from me. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, so... Last week, we covered verses 1 through 4, so that first paragraph, and we talked about how those verses are not 
Paul suggesting that we as Christians should put our heads in the clouds and not worry about concerns here on earth. You know, there's a critique of some Christians which says that we are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. And that is not Paul's vision for the church at all. You know, Paul wants the lordship of Christ and our solidarity with him to make its way into the core of our being and back out again in real action in the world. And Paul proves that he is all about the practical with the next two paragraphs. You know, today's passage, verses 5 through 11, is basically Paul's brief summary of the second half of verse 2 when he says, he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so, next week, Paul will lay out the things that are above. And this week, he's talking about the things that are on earth. And so he gets real specific. These two sections, verses 5 through 11 and then 12 through 17, they are known as a vice list and a virtue list. And so there are several of these vice lists and virtue lists across Paul's letters and in the New Testament at large. And there are examples of these in Greek literature uh, outside the scriptures. And so we see Paul adopting a medium of communication here. He's using a vice list and a virtue list to get his point across. And he gets real practical here and real quick. But before we dive deeper, I want you to just to notice a couple of things. First, notice the types of vices that Paul mentions here. So first we've got sexual sins, which are more of a personal nature. Although, you know, we shouldn't forget that in ancient times they did not have anonymous pornography like we do today. But this first set of vices is mostly of a sexual sin nature, of a personal holiness uh, thing. But then his second list we see is sins of speech. Now this is more of a communal sin. So Paul is concerned not just with personal holiness of the individual Christian, but a community of holiness and love. So that's the first thing to notice. But second, notice that there are two commands, but they are founded on a truth. In grammar terms, these are, are two imperatives founded on an indicative. And I'll show you what they are. The two commands are, in verse 5, put to death. And in verse 8, put them all away. These are commands. They are imperatives. Paul is telling us what to do here. But in verse 9, we have our foundation for these commands. He says in verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self and put on the new self. Paul doesn't command that. He just assumes it. And so this is hugely important for us, especially as we take a dive into a discussion of vices, of a list of sins, 
especially ones that are so personal, such as sexual sin. The gospel here, the good news of Jesus Christ here, is baked in. At conversion, when you accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you put off the old self. And you have put on the new self. And so, for Paul, it is possible to no longer walk in the ways of the old self. And so, in words that are the title of the sermon today, our old self is already shed, but not yet dead. And so, let's dive into both of these sets of five vices that Paul lays out for us. We'll separate them into the two sections. You know, the first section is basically kill your personal vices. And the second one is lay aside not your differences, but your divisions. Okay, so taking another look at verses 5 through 7, Paul is telling us to kill our personal vices. Take a look. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. So that first word, put to death, well, it means just what it says. Put to death. And you can hyperlink it right back to verse 3, which says, you have died. In fact, that's why there's a therefore here. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, because of that, therefore, the most natural next step is to allow this reality to affect the most practical day-to-day struggles that you face. Makes sense. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. And we see here that by earthly, Paul doesn't mean the things that happen on earth. Because we'll see that that would apply then to the second paragraph as well. What he means is the things that do not find their source in the king of heaven. In Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God but they find their source in the ruler of this world. And this is what Jesus calls Satan in the book of John. Paul makes it clear here in Colossians and elsewhere that prior to Christ, we, human beings, were captive to Satan. Prior to being in the kingdom of Jesus, we were in another kingdom. But... Through Christ, he has rescued us from that captivity. And back in chapter 1, Paul makes this abundantly clear. He says, he has delivered us from the domain or kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, because of that transfer that has already happened, Paul has no qualms here giving them a genuine, explicit, specific command. 
put to death your sexual sin. Okay, let's look at these five initial vices. It says, well, the word sexual immorality tops the list. And this word is in Greek, porneia. Does that sound familiar? This is a junk drawer term that encapsulates all sexual sin. Everything that isn't within a loving marriage between a man and a woman for life falls under this word. And this includes external actions and internal thoughts. Okay, so that's just kaboom. Umbrella term, sexual immorality. And then impurity. Impurity is often attached to sexual immorality in the New Testament, and it portrays the uncleanness that comes from sexual sin. Okay. And then passion. Passion is a pretty generic word, but when it is next to sexual immorality, again, it is associated with lustful passions. These are the bubbling up of of desire and passion for lustful experiences. Okay, and then we have evil desire. In this context, it falls into the sexual sin category as well. It is a lustful desire, a longing, a craving. And then covetousness. Covetousness is another word that can mean basically just generic greed, as in wanting what you don't have. And usually it has to do with comparison, wanting what your neighbor has. In the New Testament, it refers both to material greed, as in financial uh, possessions and, and materialism, but it also refers to sexual greed. But in this context, in this list of five, it's probably best to understand all of these as sexual vices. Okay, so... Before we talk about how Paul might suggest that we put these to death, just notice a couple of things first. Okay, so these are not just external. These are internal as well. This isn't check-the-box purity. This is deep sexual integrity. Also notice how Paul is attuned to the reality of sexual sin. It escalates. Once you've tasted it, it's hard to stop. Just ask someone, anyone, who has been the victim of an internet porn addiction. It tends to escalate. Content that the person would have found revolting just a few months ago ends up on their feed. And we should also realize that since we're talking about sexuality, we're talking about something originally created beautiful by God, to be enjoyed by humanity. But we are also talking about Satan's version of sexuality. This is sexuality as sin and Satan has twisted it. Because of that, the desire we have for it ends up twisted as well. It's a a twisted desire for an originally good thing. But the desire for it is part of how we were made. So there's good desire and there's twisted desire. 
There's God-ordained sexuality and there's twisted sexuality. And so how does one go about killing their personal sexual vices? Does Paul even give us a clue here? Or does he just say, do it? To answer that, let's look closely at Paul's follow-up statements after the list. First, take a look at what Paul says about covetousness. He says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so he qualifies this one as idolatry. Idolatry is pretty simple. It's worship of anything other than God. It is finding your security, your peace, your fulfillment in anything other than God and what he has for you. And so Paul reveals here that sexual sin is a worship problem. Sexual sin is a worship problem. And so the first step that Paul alludes to in killing your sexual sin is to worship God. That sounds kind of unrelated, doesn't it? But it's not. When you pursue God with all you've got, you start to be influenced by him. His desires start to shift your desires. You know, the psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so the more time you spend with this God, the more that you will want to adapt his opinions and his desires. You start to trust that his ways are better than the ways of the world, even, even in this area of sexuality. And when you find yourself slipping into covetousness in your sexuality, which I think we all probably do, dissatisfied, wanting what we can't have, unimpressed with what God has provided us, what that can be for you is a check engine light. I'm dissatisfied right now. I'm wanting what I can't have. That can be a check engine light, something to to get your attention, to reveal something. Perhaps you aren't worshiping God fully, but a version of God that you have created. And so the first step to killing our sexual sin seems counterintuitive, but is exactly uh, the antidote is to worship God. And this leads us to the second way we can kill our sexual sin, which is here in verse 6, to agree with God on his definition of the good sexual life. Look at verse 6. It says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Ouch. Unlike the vice lists of his time in Greek culture for Paul, Paul's vice list has a divine standard attached. So here we see that biblically, virtues and vices are not a democratic reality. The majority doesn't get to decide what's right and wrong sexually. God decides. 
and twisted versions of sexuality aren't okay with God. He will be the judge. We all love a God of justice until we realize that his justice is going to apply to our own sins. And so at that point, many would trade that God for a supposed God of love that doesn't care what we do. But that's not a God of love. That's a God of ambivalence and self-love. And so the key here is to adopt through worship, through submission to him, through recognizing his goodness and his love. The key is to adopt God's definition of the good life. And the cool thing about this, post-Jesus, post-resurrection, is that it includes two equally valuable paths. One is not better than the other. They are both equally valuable, and they are these. Heterosexual marriage, which illustrates the gospel in one way, or vocational singleness, which illustrates the gospel in another way. And after you've worshipped him a while, experienced his goodness, his salvation, his mercy, his grace, it's that much easier to trust him on this one. It's not easy, but it becomes easier. And finally, don't wallow in shame. Look at verse 7. Paul says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul casually reminds the Colossians that they were the biggest culprits of sexual sin around. He uses two words to signify a daily participation in these activities. They used to walk in them and they used to live in them. But he's not reminding them in order to shame them. He's reminding them that change is possible. And forgiveness is our starting place. This is how you used to be. But, as he says in 1 Corinthians 6, after a similar list of vices, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Killing your sexual sin is not easy. But it's doable through the love of God, the blood of Christ, and the power of the Spirit. And so then Paul pivots. He says, once you used to do, to do this, but now, in verse 8. He pivots from sexual sin to sins of the mouth, from personal struggles to corporate unity. And so we have in verses 8 through 11, his recommendation to lay aside not your differences, but your divisions. Look at verse 8 again. He says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Some of us, when we encounter virtueless or viceless, we get out our personal grading card. And we're like, okay, let's see if I measure up here. You know, I tend to read through these and think, all right, check, check, check. Dang it! If only that one weren't on the list. A lot of us read these like that. And it's even harder to imagine measuring up to a list like this if we, if we ask others to grade us. But that's exactly what Paul is doing in this pivot. He is broadening things out community-wide. He isn't just concerned with individual disciples in their lanes and in their purity. He is concerned with the community of the church shining brightly. Remember what Jesus said, they, as in the world, as in those not in the church, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We ought to always have that in the back of our minds. And here in this passage, we have the negative version of that. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Next week, we'll get the positive, and it'll be, it'll be a lot more encouraging. But here, Paul gives us things to lay aside in order to love well, in order for our love for one another to shine through. And so he says, put them all away. And that can mean lay aside, as in uh, putting away something that you no longer need, like it was raining, I had an umbrella, it's not raining, I'm putting it away, laying it aside. But it can also mean take off, as in disrobe, as in taking off clothes, lay it aside, take it off. Either way, there is a sense in which these things that we are laying aside for the good of the community used to be of value to us. Maybe your anger used to get you what you wanted. Maybe your silver tongue used to gain you the types of friends you wanted. But now, Paul says, we must lay these things aside. What are they? Well, first we have anger and wrath. And these words are interchangeable in Scripture, and they basically refer to anger and wrath. And Paul doesn't think anger and wrath are in and of themselves wrong. How do I know that? Because two verses ago, we see God's wrath. And it's the same word as anger in verse 8. So what is wrong about anger and wrath? It seems to be what you do with it. That is the issue. In Ephesians 4, in a similar passage where, where Paul is trying to apply these deep theological truths to this community of faith, he says, be angry. In Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. There are good reasons to be angry. But if your anger is leading to the rest of these vices especially in the community of faith, there's a problem. And there's a spectrum here from the internal to the external. It starts with anger, which is deep within, and it ends with obscene talk. This is external. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. So malice 
is sort of the, the pivot word from internal to external. Malice is anger turned into vengeance. You know, it's, it's wrath turned into planning. Malice is the characteristic of people that Proverbs suggests that we run far away from. These are those people whose feet are quick to do violence. It says in Proverbs, quick to shed blood, quick to make gains at the expense of others. Slander is speech. And it's speech that tears another person down. Obscene talk is a word that doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means something like abusive speech. And Paul caps off the list here in verse 9 with the most heinous act one can commit with the mouth. Lying to one another. You can call me names, you can do whatever you want, but just don't lie to me. Right? Clearly, Paul places a high value on how we speak to one another here in the church. And what I love about this is that there is no way out. There's no fleeing the scene. There's no canceling happening. In our day and age, when we are angered at someone, even someone we love, the most natural next step, aside from slander and malice and the like, is to leave the relationship. But Paul doesn't list that as an option. And we'll get to it next week, but his his positive recommendation of this is so basic and so Christian as to be radical. In verse In verse 13, he says, bear with one another. Bear with one another. Ooh, there's a lot in there. And then he says, and if someone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. That seems kind of radical these days. And of course, it involves mutual humility. But why? Why not just run? Why not just flee the scene? Why not just end it? Because we are one. Look at the rest of verse 9. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, and the word is the old man with its practices, and have put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We tend to read the rest of verses 9 and 10 individualistically because we read everything individualistically. But there is a corporate overtone to what Paul is getting at here. They haven't just individually put off the old self and put on the new self. This is a corporate reality as well. And I'll show you uh, what I mean. In Ephesians 2, Paul gets this across And this is my favorite passage when it comes to the unity of the church. Paul is discussing Jews and non-Jews, but it, it can apply to any ethnic group previously at odds, but now in Christ. Listen to this. He says, For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one, 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. One new man. In place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Elsewhere, Paul associates this reality with baptism. This is a verse I often quote before we baptize someone in this room. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We lay aside selfishness, anger, and pride for the sake of one another. Why? Because we have put off the old self with its practices. We have put off the old self and we have put on the new self, the new man, the new humanity that Christ has created in himself after killing the hostility by absorbing it into his very flesh. Praise God. And look how committed God is to his new humanity that he has created in the church. It says uh, in verse uh, 10, this new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Most of you know that when we were created, when Adam and Eve were first formed in the garden, they were formed in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And then they fell. They rebelled. They said, no, God, we want to be our own gods. And then the image was marred. And yet we see that through Christ, God is remaking, renewing us into the image of our creator. And we see in, earlier in Colossians that Jesus himself is the image of this invisible God. And so it's Jesus' image that we are being formed into collectively with one another, alongside one another. You matter to my growth. I matter to yours. We're not just shooting for virtue here. We're shooting for resemblance. And as we get to know him more, it's no wonder we start to talk like him, to walk like him, to be like him. And so we shouldn't just seek to live in peace with one another because of what has happened to us individually. We should seek to live in peace with one another because of what has happened to us collectively. We have put on Christ. Together, we have put on Christ. The person sitting next to you matters. In Christ, God has created one new man of which we are all a part. It doesn't matter your background. And verse 11 sinks this home. He says, Here, in this new man, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In this new humanity, all peoples are welcome. Even though 
even those that would typically have resisted being in the same room, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, which is just a type of barbarian that was way out in the boonies, slave, free. It doesn't matter your demographic. It doesn't matter your status. When we are one in Christ, Christ is what matters. And so we kill our personal devices, not necessarily devices, although that might actually help. And then we lay aside not our differences, but our divisions. And I want to finish today by reading a passage from one of my favorite books. It's from the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the third book in the series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This passage gets something across that is it's hard to explain, which is how painful this process is. Especially this, this first section, this, this first list of vices uh, about sexual sin. You know, it's one thing to tell yourself to worship God, accept his definitions, and not to wallow in shame, but it's painful in practice. But I want to read this passage to illustrate that it's a good pain. I've got to set it up for you, though. All right, Eustace Scrub. That's a name. Eustace Scrub. He is Edmund and Lucy Pevensey's cousin. A lot of you have probably heard of Edmund and Lucy. The son of Harold and Alberta Scrub. He is a regular bully. He accidentally tags along with Edmund and Lucy on an adventure in Narnia on a ship to discover the very end of the world. They dock at a far-off island, which isn't even on a map yet. And Eustace, miserable as he is with seasickness and self-absorption, slinks away to find some solitude. He discovers a cave full of treasure. And since he is an opportunistic person, he stuffs his pockets with treasure and places a gold arm ring up his arm. The only thing is, this is a dragon's cave, and it is bewitched. Eustace, that very minute, becomes a dragon. And at first, being a dragon is good fun, and it actually helps him start to become a better person. But the arm ring doesn't break and makes even his dragon arm swell up with pain. After a long while of suffering and longing to become human again, he finds a way to rid himself of his dragonness. Or rather, he meets someone who helps rid him of his dragonness. Okay, here's the passage. I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected. A huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon that night, but there was moonlight where the, where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that, being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. 
Well, it came closer up to me and looked straight into my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. And Edmund's talking to him. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and round the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I had never seen before. And on the top of this mountain there was a garden. Trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself. And my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. And instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness. Or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as it had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It's only, it only means that I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get rid of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and under this, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I, out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker 
and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much because I was very tender underneath thou, now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes, for one thing, and you've been, well, undragoned, for another. What do you think it was, then? asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Some of you have been scratching and scraping your vices away like Eustace the dragon. But this can only ever be surface level deep. You may need to allow the painful swipe of the only one who can remove those things from you without doing you any harm. The first step is to recognize how committed to you he is how good he is and how able he is to do things that you can't even imagine. But he has staked his very reputation on his ability to do this and he is committed to your health, your growth, your flourishing. Let's pray. God, I thank you for a passage like this one today that forces us to ask ourselves the question, do we think, do we think things that seem impossible are possible? Do we think that you are good enough to want and help us grow in ways that we, we couldn't even fathom growing? Do we believe in your reality? Do we believe in your goodness? Or have we just adopted a, a, a wave of, of belief that we've caught from things around us, from, from the air that we, that we walk in, from the, from the water we swim in? Spirit, I pray that you would challenge these, these assumed and accepted notions that we have challenge them and show show them in the light of the truth of your gospel i pray for each person here in their in their individual lives and in their individual paths of righteousness that you've called them in as well as in how each of us is a is a 
is a brick in the building of this church. Not this physical church, but the church as in the body of believers, that we are all a part. And so each of our lives matters to this church. I pray, Spirit, that you would move mightily in the hearts of us today. I pray that in our worship, you would shift things that have needed shifting. I pray that in our worship, you would give us hope that you can do things far greater than we have even ever asked or imagined. And it's all in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.